The FBI lied to a judge so they could rob a bank in L.A. to the tune of $86 million. CBS says the Fed plans to sharply increase unemployment in America. And another FBI pre-dawn raid of a Christian pro-life leader terrorizing his wife and seven small children. Plus, world markets are in deep trouble going into the start of the week. Details on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 246 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, September 26, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented an unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So obviously, this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you would like to support what we do, please go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now, first of all, as I'm recording this show after midnight, Monday morning, 4 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Central, 2 a.m. Mountain Time, 1 a.m. Pacific, there are troubling signs in overseas markets. Let's start with Bloomberg. At noon Central, Sunday, They said a hawkish Federal Reserve crushed whatever hope investors had plunging the stock market into a doom spiral last week and sparking traders' fears that even more losses are on the way. And he hopes that stocks had priced in the bulk of the bad news heading into the Fed's latest meeting are now dashed. The S&P 500 index lost more than 4% since midday Wednesday when the central bank raised rates by three-quarters of a percentage point and signaled that a more aggressive pace of hikes than expected is on the way. For the first time since June, traders are paying more for protection against short-term gyrations in the S&P 500 for long-term swings a sign of confusion about where stocks are headed. Meanwhile, a cascade of estimate cuts from Wall Street analysts conveys a similarly grim message. Strategists at Goldman Sachs, for instance, sliced their year-end view on the broad equities benchmark to a level that implies a 2.5% drop from Monday's close. And strategists said more pain may be coming. Okay, so then a little over six hours later, 
Tom Westbrook at Reuters in Sydney, of all places, reported Sterling slumped to a record low on Monday, prompting speculation of an emergency response from the Bank of England as confidence evaporated in Britain's plan to borrow its way out of trouble with spooked investors piling into U.S. dollars. Broadening worry that high interest rates will hurt growth hit Asia's currencies and equities too, with exporters from Japanese car makers to Australian miners hit hard. The pound plunged nearly 5% at one point to a dollar oh three twenty seven, breaking below 1985 lows. Moves were exacerbated by a thinner liquidity in the Asia session, but even after stumbling back to $1.05, the currency is still down some 7% in just two sessions. Now, Rabobank strategist Michael Every in Singapore said, you got to buy the dollar as a risk off trade. There's nowhere else to go. He also said the BOE are going to have to step in today, surely at which point everyone's going to end up with massively higher mortgage rates to try and stabilize sterling. The collapse sent the dollar higher broadly, and it hit multi-year peaks on the Aussie, Kiwi, and Yuan, and a new 20-year top of 0.9528 per euro. In stocks, Miski's broadest index of Asia-Pacific shares outside Japan was down 1% to a two-year low. It is heading for a monthly loss of 11%, the largest since March 2020. Japan's Nikkei fell 2.2%. S&P 500 futures fell 0.5%. Last week, stocks and bonds crumbled after the United States and half a dozen other countries raised rates and projected pain ahead. Japan intervened in currency trade to support the yen. Investors lost confidence in Britain's economic management. The Nasdaq lost more than 5% for the second week running. The S&P 500 fell 4.8%. So three and a half hours later after this came out, by this time we're talking like a quarter till 10 central time U.S., Sahana Karun over at Watcher.Guru, one of the most comprehensive financial sites I've ever seen with millions of followers, announced China had just directed his state banks to buy stocks. So let's dig into that. Here's the report. While the rest of the globe was bidding farewell to the deadly pandemic, China continued to impose lockdowns that seemed to have taken a toll on its economy. In addition to this, the country's property market, which has been a core driver of its economy, also took a hit. The China stock market followed suit. Now, to prevent excessive selling, the government has ordered state banks to purchase stocks. According to the Consul General of China in Belfast, Zhang Mifang, the reason behind this was to stabilize a foreign exchange market. Bolstering macro management was also part of this move. She noted the foreign exchange risk reserve ratio for foreign exchange forwards trading would surge from 0 to 20% in the next two days. The China Government official took to Twitter to make the announcement. Now, Watcher.Guru said this certainly did not settle well 
with the community. Several took to Twitter to note how China's central bank was formulating an artificial bottom to the market. One Twitter user also suggested that the country could witness unrest due to the central bank's move, but it should be noted that this wasn't China's first move to fix its markets artificially. The government recently announced that the China Construction Bank would set up a $4.2 billion fund to purchase real estate properties from developers. This was in light of its depleting housing market. So will China witness a turnover? Now, recent reports from stock analysts brought about hope to many. However, the Chinese government seemed to be heading in another direction. Xuan Yugen, a strategist at Haitong Securities, believed that the market was much better than what it used to be a couple of months ago. Yugen added, the current economic scenario is better than the end of April. The risk premium is now close to what it was in April. That means the market has largely digested the risks. Additionally, a fund manager at Huchen Asset Management in Shanghai, Dai Ming, noted how buying power should surge for stocks to be up. Chinese government could be abiding by this in order to spruce up its market. Ming added, for stocks to be up, you'll need buying power that is often accompanied by rising trading volumes. For that to take place, the market will need to see some changes of the fundamentals. Taking a leaf from the books of the past, Yi Ben, an analyst at Western Securities, suggested that the market could see respite post the holiday. Yi stated, given the historical experience over the past decade, the markets are prone for tight liquidity and the shrinkage in trading volume. So that's the reporting from Watcher.Guru, a very impressive site. On a more informal basis, my old friend Stephen Finnegan, who used to fill in for me on my local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas, reported in after 11 Central Sunday evening that the Nikkei was down over 600 points at that point. The Kospi index in South Korea was down 2%. Shanghai and Hong Kong were down slightly. And the rest of the Asia-Pacific rim was also in negative territory. The puzzling thing was that precious metals were falling. Gold, silver, copper, platinum, palladium, the whole thing, all of them were down significantly. So, look, I can report this stuff to you, but I, I can't really give you financial advice. For that, you really ought to get a hold of Jonathan Presswood over at Edward Jones, especially at a time like this, but m more on that later. Okay, so before I get to the story of the FBI raiding the home of a Christian pro-life leader and the FBI actually robbing a bank, let me try to explain briefly why the Federal Reserve intends to raise U.S. unemployment. You know, that really doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Anyway, CBS Market Watch has the story. The article is by Irina Iranova, and it's entitled, Buckle Up, America, The Fed Plans to Sharply Boost Unemployment. Yikes. So here's what it says. In case the U.S. economy wasn't hurting enough already, the Federal Reserve has a message for Americans. It's about to get much more painful. Is anybody talking about this anywhere? Have you heard about this anywhere? I kind of think it's important. So that's why I'm sharing it with you. In the middle of the night, no less. But it's probably broad daylight by the time you're hearing this. Anyway, Fed Chair Jerome Powell 
made it amply clear that things are going to get much more painful last week when the central bank projected its benchmark rate hitting 4.4% by the end of the year, even if it causes a recession. That's right. Powell said on Wednesday, there will very likely be some softening of labor market conditions. We will keep at it until we are confident the job is done. In plain English, that means more unemployment. The Fed forecasts the unemployment rate to rise to 4.4% next year, up from 3.7% right now, a number that implies an additional 1.2 million people losing their jobs. Powell also said, I wish there were a painless way to do that. There isn't. So here's the idea behind why boosting the nation's unemployment could cool inflation. With an additional million or two million people out of work, the newly unemployed and their families would sharply cut back on spending. While for most people who are still working, wage growth would flatline. When companies assume their labor costs are unlikely to rise, the theory goes they'll stop hiking prices. That, in turn, slows the growth in prices. But some economists question whether crushing the job market is necessary to bring inflation to heal. Well, you know, we all know what could bring inflation to heal, and that would be slashing the federal budget. But Biden and the people running him are intent on spending more and more and more and getting inflation through the roof, like Weimar Germany kind of through the roof, like Venezuela kind of through the roof, like Zimbabwe kind of through the roof. They try to take us down. And Jerome Powell is trying to act like, well, that's not going on. Anyway, back to the article. Ian Shepardson, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, said in a report, the Fed clearly wants the labor market to weaken quite sharply. What's not clear to us is why. He predicted that inflation is set to plunge next year as supply chains normalize anyway. Yeah, good luck with that. The Fed fears a so-called wage price spiral in which workers demand higher pay to stay ahead of inflation and companies pass those higher wage costs on to consumers. Well, that makes sense. But experts disagree that wages are the main driver of today's red-hot inflation. Well, the experts are right. That's not the main driver. The main driver is the government spending. Thank you, Dementia Joe. Let's go, Brandon. Anyway, it says, while worker pay has risen an average of 5.5% over the last year, it's been eclipsed by even higher price increases. Now, former Fed economist Claudia Somm noted in a tweet, at least half of today's inflation comes from supply chain issues. Son noted that lower-wage workers today have both benefited the most from pay increases and been hurt the most by inflation, inflation driven by higher spending by wealthy households rather than people lower down the ladder. While the exact relationship between wages and inflation remains under debate, 
Economists are much clearer on how raising interest rates puts people out of work. Josh Bivens, research director of the Economic Policy Institute, said, when rates rise, any consumer item that people take on debt to buy, whether that's automobiles or washing machines, gets more expensive. So that means less work for the people making those cars and washing machines and eventually layoffs. Other parts of the economy sensitive to interest rates, such as construction, home sales, and mortgage refinancing, also slow down, affecting employment in those sectors. In addition, people travel less, leading hotels to reduce staffing to account for lower occupancy rates. Businesses looking to expand, say a coffee shop chain, opening a new branch, are more hesitant to do so when borrowing costs are high. And as people spend less on travel, dining out and entertainment, those hoteliers and restaurateurs will have fewer customers to serve and eventually cut back on staff. Peter Buchvar, chief investment officer at the Bleakley Financial Group, said, in the service economy, labor is the biggest component of your cost structure. So if you're looking to cut costs, that's where you'll look first. While in Buchvar's view, hiking rates is needed, the Fed's tactics strike him as aggressive. He said, I just have a problem with the Fed's rapidity and scale. They're coming on so fast and so strong, I'm just worried the economy and markets can't handle it. In the meantime, according to predictions from Oxford Economics, the Fed's existing rate hikes have put about 800,000 job losses in the pipeline. Nancy Vandenhouten, Oxford's lead U.S. economist, said when we look at 2023, we see almost no net hiring in the first quarter and job losses of over 800,000 or even 900,000 in the second and third quarter combined. Others predict an even harder landing with Bank of America expecting a peak unemployment rate of 5.6% next year. That will put an additional 3.2 million people out of work above today's levels. Some policymakers and economists have called out the Fed's aggressive rate hike plans. With Senator Elizabeth Warren, you know, Focahontas, Elizabeth Warren, saying they would throw millions of Americans out of work and some, you know, the former Fed economists, calling them inexcusable, bordering on dangerous. But Jerome Powell promised pain, and many are questioning just how much pain is necessary. Again, Bivens said, inflation will come down quite a bit faster if we actually hit a recession, but the cost of that is going to be much bigger. He added the danger is that the Fed set off a runaway train. Once unemployment starts rising sharply, it's hard to make it stop. Rather than neatly halting at the 4.4% unemployment rate projected by Fed officials, the jobless numbers could easily keep rising. Biven said this idea that there's an inflation dial that the Fed can just haul on really hard and leave everything else untouched, that's a fallacy. 
Bivens added, instead of the soft landing for the economy the Fed says it's aiming for, we're now pointing the plane at the ground pretty hard and hitting the accelerator. Oh, my goodness. I believe him. You know, I almost get the idea that Jerome Powell has no idea what he's doing. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay, um, coming up, we got a couple of FBI horror stories. But first of all, again, I can't say thank you enough to our advertisers, our friends, for making it possible for us to do what we do week in and week out. Can't thank you guys enough. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else, Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there. And there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501 503-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, 
Go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood and Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thanks again to Jonathan Presswood, Edward Jones, financial advisors, for making it possible for us to do the Doc Washburn Show week in and week out. Thanks again also to our friend Mitch Ward, proprietor at RedRiverYourWay.com. Now, folks in central Arkansas, of course, can visit their brick-and-mortar store, but people all over the U.S. can buy online, have it delivered to their front door. Sweet. All right, time for FBI horror stories. First of all, we before we get to the story, of the FBI lying to a judge so they could rob a bank in L.A. and make off with $86 million. First, let's deal with what they did to a Christian pro-life family before dawn Friday morning. And the LifeSite News website, their coverage is just as good, probably better than anybody else's. Okay, Dateline, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, suburban Philly. A well-known pro-life author, sidewalk counselor, and father of seven was the latest victim of a U.S. Department of Justice-sponsored SWAT raid and arrest for supposed violations of the FACE Act, Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances, at his rural home as his children looked on screaming. Mark Houck, H-O-U-C-K. is the founder and president of the King's Men, which promotes healing for victims of pornography addiction and promotes Christian virtues among men in the United States and Europe. According to his wife, Ryan Marie, who spoke with LifeSite News, Mark Halk also drives two hours south to Philadelphia every Wednesday to sidewalk council for six to eight hours at two different abortion centers. Ryan Marie, who is a homeschooling mother, described how the SWAT team of 25 to 30 FBI agents swarmed their property with around 15 vehicles at 7.05 Friday morning. Having quickly surrounded the house with rifles in firing position, she said they started pounding on the door and yelling for us to open it. She explained before opening the door, her husband tried to calm them down saying, please, I'm going to open the door, but please, my children are in the home. I have seven babies in the house, but they just kept pounding and screaming. She said when they opened the door, they had big, huge rifles pointed at Mark and pointed at me and kind of pointed throughout the house grief. She said when they came in, they ordered the kids to stay upstairs. She said our staircase is open. So the kids were all at the top of the stairs, which faces the front door. And I was on the stairs as well coming down. She said the kids were all just screaming. It was all just very scary and traumatic. They were screaming. 
After asking them why they were at the house, the agent said they were there to arrest Mark Halk. When wife Ryan Marie asked for their warrant, they said that they were going to take him whether they had a warrant or not. When Ryan Marie protested, saying, that is kidnapping, you can't just come to a person's house and kidnap them at gunpoint, they agreed to get the warrant for her from one of their vehicles. At this point, Mark Halk asked her to get him a sweatshirt and his rosaries, but when she returned, they had already loaded him into a vehicle. They provided her with just the first page of the warrant and said they were taking him to the federal building in downtown Philadelphia. Ryan Marie explained after they had taken Mark and the kids were all screaming that he was their best friend, the FBI agents on her porch kind of softened a bit. She said, I think they realized what was happening, or maybe they actually looked at the warrant. They looked pretty ashamed at what had just happened. Well, will wonders never cease? I don't expect that from FBI agents, frankly. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm not one of these Sean Hannity types who will say, ah, 99% of the field agents are just wonderful people. It's just the leadership on the seventh floor in D.C. No, 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 no. They've done way too much. Way too much. They're what, 14 whistleblowers out of how many thousands of employees? No, I'm sorry. I, no. No, they, they need to be dismantled. Anyway, as a result, the homeschool mother said her kids were really sad and stressed. She said, so I've already reached out to some psychiatrists or psychologists to try to help us through this. Well, I hope they're Christians, because if not, you're asking for a world of hurt. She said, I don't really know what's going to come of it when you see guns pointed at your dad and your mom and your house when you first wake up in the morning. Now, what about that warrant? The warrant charged Mark with violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act due to a claimed attack of a patient escort. Ryan Marie said this charge comes from an incident that had already been thrown out of the district court in Philadelphia but was somehow picked up by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice. Somehow. I bet I know how. I'm sure abortion clinics all over the country the ones that are still open, have a direct line into Joe Biden's DOJ. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's all about clinic access. Uh, can I just say something? Can I just say something here? So Hunter Biden impregnated a woman from Batesville, Arkansas. And she chose to actually allow the baby to be born instead of having an abortion. So Hunter denied having even met her. Her attorney eventually proved the paternity. But Joe and Jill are like, no, 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 no. They won't acknowledge their grandbaby. So you know they're upset that she refused to kill the baby. So you know, you know Department of Justice is under 
orders to do whatever. I mean, hey, Biden said the other day, if Democrats keep control of both houses of Congress, he's going to get a law passed making abortion legal in all 50 states up until the moment of birth. So you see what's at issue here. So anyway, Mark Halk's wife, Ryan Marie, said on several occasions when Mark went to sidewalk council last year, he took his eldest son, who was only 12 at the time. She said for weeks and weeks, a pro-abortion protester would speak to the boy saying crude, inappropriate, and disgusting things such as your dad's a fag and other statements that were too vulgar for her to convey. Repeatedly, Mark Houck would tell this pro-abortion man that he did not have permission to speak to his son and please refrain from doing so. And he just kept doing it and kind of came into the son's personal space, got way too close, obscenely ridiculing his father. At that point, Mark shoved him away from his child, and the guy fell back. He didn't have any injuries or anything, but he tried to sue Mark, and the case was thrown out of court in the early summer. Since the Biden administration has taken power January 2021, Garland's DOJ and the FBI, of course, have committed dozens of SWAT team raids that have been characterized as a political weaponization of the federal agencies against pro-lifers, Trump supporters, conservative Christians, and medical freedom advocates. Do you know about this? For example, in contrast to left-wing rioters who caused enormous damage in cities across the nation in 2020 and the vandals who have attacked dozens of pro-life centers this year with little or no legal ramifications, Department of Justice implemented the harshest of consequences for those they identified as having anything to do with the disturbance at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Now, you probably did know about that. These actions have included early morning SWAT team arrests, ransacked homes, confiscation of property, indefinite pretrial solitary confinement without bail in a dedicated D.C. prison, significant physical abuse, and the violation of the constitutional rights to a speedy trial. In March of this year, the FBI rounded up 10 pro-life activists, including Joan Andrews Bell, with SWAT team raids that served to intimidate and humiliate the accused through an exercise of excessive force. A surfaced video of one of these raids shows armed agents holding pro-lifers at gunpoint and ordering them to put their hands up, drop to their knees, and scoot backward out their front door in the middle of the night. The pro-lifers are respectful and compliant throughout. After the FBI's unprecedented August 8th raid on President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called it another escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies against the regime's political opponents. Soon after Joe Biden's September 1 speech where he declared war on conservative Christians, Dozens of Trump allies had their homes raided by the FBI, which Steve Bannon 
on his war room show, referred to as a Gestapo tactic and said it was all about intimidation. Now, in response to the raid on the Halk residence Friday morning, however, local pro-life advocates in the Philadelphia area don't seem to be intimidated but energized. In addition to sponsoring a fundraiser for this family, they held a prayer rally at the Philadelphia Women's Center abortion facility in Philadelphia on Saturday. Needless to say, this is all outrageous. And the FBI is clearly politicized to do the bidding of this evil regime. You know, i got to tell you something. When Barack Hussein Obama was president, it was popular for conservatives to say he is the worst president in the history of the United States. And my answer was typically, well, maybe. He might be. Not really going to argue with you, but how familiar are you with Woodrow Wilson? Because I thought Woodrow Wilson was right up there with Barack Obama. And I don't know which one was worse. And if you're sitting there listening to me going, okay, Wilson, what's the deal with Wilson? Well, there's a great book. It's called Liberal Fascism, and it came out, what, um, 15, 20 years ago? It's a great book, and it explains the history of progressivism in this country. You remember uh, some years back when Hillary Clinton was asked, are you a liberal? Well, I don't really consider myself a liberal. I consider myself a, a like a progressive, like early 20th century progressive. Oh, okay. And then Glenn Beck explained what that was. Well, there's a book that explained it. Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg came out in 2008. And it's just remarkable. You know, when I was in the eighth grade, I remember this. U.S. history. We were taught that Warren G. Harding ran for president in 1920, and his slogan was return to normalcy. But they didn't tell us what that meant. I learned about it from liberal fascism, the book by Jonah Goldberg. What it meant was, oh, I, 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 <laughs> I got a comment <laughs> on the Podbean app on the live stream saying Goldberg is not what you think he is. Look, I know he's gone crazy the past few years. I get it. I understand. He's off the reservation. He's a knucklehead. Everyone, no, 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 no. You, this book is so great, and he's so awful now that you can't imagine it's the same guy that wrote the book. Because every once in a while, he says something ridiculous out there on Twitter, and I'll say, hey, Jonah, you know, there was a great book some years back called Liberal Fascism. It's by a guy named Jonah Goldberg. What happened to that guy? Can you, have you seen him lately? Can you tell me? <laughs> anyway, but it was a great book. And what Warren G. Harding meant in 1920 
when he ran for president? Return to normalcy? What he meant by that was, hey, look, you elect me president, and I will set free the 100,000 political prisoners that Wilson threw in federal prison. And people are like, uh, yeah, we can get behind that. Sure, that's the thing. See, I don't know if you realize this, but the only reason that Woodrow Wilson got elected in 1912 in the first place was because Teddy Roosevelt's heir apparent, William Howard Taft, who got elected in 1908. Well, he kind of went off the reservation, did some stuff Teddy didn't like, and so Teddy was upset, and he's personally offended, and so he pulled a Ross Perot. In 1912, he ran as a third-party candidate, assuring that the Republican Taft wouldn't get reelected, and the Democrat, the schmo Woodrow Wilson, would get in. Exactly what Ross Perot did in 1992, made sure that Bill Clinton got elected instead of George H.W. Bush got reelected. So anyway, I don't know if you realize this, but between the Civil War and 1932, there are only two Democrats elected president that whole time. That's how bitter a taste the Civil War put in the mouth of the American electorate. Before Wilson, there was only Grover Cleveland. He was really conservative. I mean, he, he Democrats today wouldn't recognize him. And the only reason Wilson, who was horrible, he was a racist, he was terrible, the only reason he got in was because Teddy pulled the Ross Perot before Ross Perot was even around. But no, you're right. Jonah Goldberg is awful now. I, I, I don't understand how a guy who wrote such a great book 14 years ago has gone so completely liberal and off the reservation because, I, you know, I look at him and I'm like, dude, go read your book. You didn't learn anything from your research from that book you wrote? Because, no, I remember. <clears throat> I remember when Andrew Breitbart died. You know, we all started saying we are Breitbart, right? Jonah Goldberg had just been a, a guest on Fox News right before the news came out that Andrew Breitbart had just passed away on a sidewalk in L.A. And a lot of us wonder, you know, how that happened. But anyway, they were able to get Jonah Goldberg, before he left the building to come back into the studio and give his remembrances of his good friend, Andrew Bipart. And it was very difficult because it was such a shock and Jonah was in tears. And I, I don't understand what happened to that guy. I don't understand what happened? Oh, good memory here. My friend on the, on the live stream, on the Podbean live stream, is saying these are the same people that supported John Anderson over Reagan, and 10 years later, Anderson came out as a socialist. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Andrew Breitbart died March 1st, 2012. 
And, and he and Jonah Goldberg were good friends. He was in tears and just, I don't know what happened to him in the last 10 years, but it's not good. I could tell you that. Man. Anyway, um, I tell you what, speaking of not good, speaking of abuse of power, I still want to get to the story of the FBI lying to a judge so they could rob a bank for $86 million in L.A. And so that is coming up. But first of all, let me just say thank you again to our advertisers. They are the lifeblood of this show, and we can't thank them enough for making it possible for us to do what we do here week in and week out. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. Do you have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever? Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. And again, thank you so much to Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, our advertisers, our friends, our doctors, they have helped me and my wife and so many people that we know. And again, if you're in outside central Arkansas, check out their website. Maybe you can find somebody close to where you are. Um, it's just been amazing. The best kept secret in American health care. No question about it. Okay. Now. The FBI obviously is clearly politicized through the bidding of the regime. We just had a story of the pro-lifer who didn't do anything wrong, who didn't break any laws, and, and they and they raid his home before dawn with guns drawn and arrest him. Why? Because he's a pro-lifer. Because law doesn't mean anything anymore to this regime. They're trying to turn us into a banana republic. Okay, so the L.A. Times 
has a fascinating article entitled FBI Misled Judge Who Signed Warrant for Beverly Hills Seizure of $86 million in cash. Now, the great Scott Adams, the guy who created the Dilbert comic strip, reacted over on Twitter to this story by saying the FBI robbed a bank and it's being covered at a, as a process story. Literally, they robbed a bank. I mean, actually, really, no kidding, robbed a bank. That's Dilbert creator Scott Adams' tweet about this story. By the way, have I ever mentioned the FBI is hopelessly, irredeemably corrupt and that it must be dismantled? I mean, how many more examples do you need? So let's dig into the L.A. Times article. Reporter Michael Finnegan over the L.A. Times, probably no relation to the great Stephen Finnegan, says the privacy invasion was vast when FBI agents drilled and pried their way into 1,400 safe deposit boxes at the U.S. Private Vaults store in Beverly Hills. They rummaged through personal belongings of a jazz saxophone player, an interior designer or retired doctor, a flooring contractor, two lawyers in Century City, and hundreds of other people. Agents took photos and videos of pay stubs, password lists, credit cards, a prenuptial agreement, immigration and vaccination records, bank statements, heirlooms, and a will, according to court records. In one box, agents actually found cremated human remains. Eighteen months later, newly unsealed court documents show that the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles got their warrant for that raid by misleading the judge who approved it. Oh, I'm so shocked. A senior FBI agent recently testified they omitted from their warrant request a central part of the FBI's plan, permanent confiscation of everything inside every box containing at least $5,000 in cash or goods. Have I ever mentioned to you that civil asset forfeiture is evil and we need to expunge it from our legal system? If I haven't, I should have, and I'm doing it now. Court records show the FBI's justification for the dragnet forfeiture was its presumption that hundreds of unknown box holders were all Storing assets somehow tied to unknown crimes. Okay, wait, 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 wait. How could they possibly know this? What are they, psychics? Are they being consulted by Miss Cleo? What? She's been dead since 2016. Just as dead as the FBI's claims to impartiality. Boy, I bet she didn't see that coming. What? Too soon. Hey, no booing. No booing for what you're paying. This is funny stuff. 
But I digress. It took five days for scores of agents to fill their evidence bags with the bounty. More than $86 million in cash and a bonanza of gold, silver, rare coins, gem-studded jewelry, and enough Rolex and Cartier watches to stock a boutique. The U.S. Attorney's Office has tried to block public disclosure of court papers that laid bare the government's deception, but a judge rejected its request to keep them under seal. Now, the failure to disclose the confiscation plan in the warrant request came to light in FBI documents and depositions of agents in a class action lawsuit by box holders who say the raid violated their rights. The court filings also show that federal agents defied restrictions that U.S. Magistrate Judge Steve Kim set in the warrant by searching through box holders' belongings for evidence of crimes. Okay, didn't we used to have something called the Fourth Amendment that says that's exactly what the government can't do? Oh, yeah, that's right. The FBI is a law unto itself. Show me the man, or in this case, a safe deposit box, and I'll show you the crime. Yeah, that's the ticket. So the L.A. Times says Robert Frommer, a lawyer who represents nearly 400 box holders in a class action case, wrote in court papers, the government did not know what was in those boxes, who owned them, or what, if anything, those people had done. That's why the warrant application did not even attempt to argue there was probable cause to seize and forfeit box renters' property. So, after a two-year investigation that opened in 2019, leaders of the FBI's L.A. office believed U.S. private vaults was a magnet for criminals holding illicit proceeds in their safe deposit boxes. Now, the business was charged with conspiracy to sell drugs and launder money. The FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office denied that they misled the judge or ignored his conditions, saying they had no obligation to tell him of the plan for indiscriminate confiscations on the blanket assumption that every customer was hiding crime-tainted assets. FBI spokeswoman Laura I. Miller said the warrants were lawfully executed based on allegations of widespread criminal wrongdoing. She said at no time was a magistrate misled as to the probable cause used to obtain the warrants. Okay, wait, wait, so wait. So she gets paid to lie too? She said the company, U.S. Private Vaults, has pleaded guilty to conspiracy to launder drug money and the investigation is continuing. The plaintiffs in the class action suit, have asked U.S. District Judge R. Gary Klausner to declare the raid unconstitutional. If he grants the request, it could force the FBI to return millions of dollars to box holders whose assets it has tried to confiscate. Okay, wait a minute. Tried to confiscate? Sounds like the attempt was pretty successful. Tried? 
Anyway, L.A. Times says it could also spoil an unknown number of criminal investigations by blocking prosecutors from using any evidence or information acquired in the raid, including guns and drugs. Hey, guys. Hey, FBI. Hey, Federal Bureau of Intimidation. Read my lips. Fruit of the poison tree. Learn it. Love it. Live it. Now, until the FBI shut it down, this U.S. private vaults organization was an easy-to-miss store in a strip mall on Olympic Boulevard in Beverly Hills right next to a Supercuts hair salon and a kosher vegan Thai restaurant. I don't think I'd be interested in that restaurant. I'm just, that's just me, but. No, I've had some good Thai stuff, but, but vegan? Anyway. So around 2015, U.S. private vaults began attracting police attention. Local detectives and federal agents spotted drug suspects walking in and out. FBI agent Lynn Zellhart, former Sacramento attorney, first heard about it from a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy. So the deputy told her customers who could rent boxes without identifying themselves entered the store's vault with a biometric eye scan. So Agent Zellhart testified in a class action suit the sheriff's department suspected a customer was a criminal but was having all kinds of problems getting into the box that they had a warrant for because of the nature of the business. By 2019, federal and local law enforcement had managed to search more than a dozen boxes and seized about $5 million from five drug dealers, a bookie, and a debit card thief. At that point, the FBI opened an investigation of the business itself. Agent Zellhart who specializes in money laundering, said she thought it should be shut down. So she joined forces with counterparts at the Drug Enforcement Administration, you know, the good old DEA, and the Postal Inspection Service. Through surveillance, informants, and undercover work, they surmised that U.S. private vaults and a precious metal store next door we're actually helping drug dealers launder cash by converting it into gold and silver they stashed in their boxes. FBI agent Zellhart was given the task of spelling out the government's case in an affidavit that it took her more than six months to write. Prosecutors submitted it to Judge Kim in a request for six warrants. Now, five of the warrants were for straightforward searches of the store and the homes of its owners and managers to gather evidence for prosecution of the company. But the sixth warrant, ah, there's the rub. The sixth warrant to seize the store's business equipment for forfeiture was highly unusual. 
The government wanted to take not just computers, money counters, video cameras, and iris scanners, but also the nests of safety deposit boxes and keys. The only way the FBI could seize the racks of boxes would be to take possession of the contents, too. Any judge reviewing the warrant request would recognize a threat to the rights of what turned out to be about 700 customers who had locked away some of their most private and valuable belongings. Box holders would liken the raid to police barging into a building's 700 apartments and taking every tenant's possessions when they have evidence of wrongdoing by nobody but the landlord. Now, a spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office declined to say whether the government had evidence of criminal activity by any specific box holders prior to the raid. The Fourth Amendment... All right, all right, here we go, here we go. I knew this was coming in the L.A. Times article. I knew it. They had to get to this. The, okay, here we go. The Fourth Amendment protects people against unreasonable searches and seizures. It requires the government to get a warrant by showing in a sworn statement that it has probable cause to believe that a particular place needs to be searched and describing specific people or things to be seized. Got it? In her affidavit, Agent Zellhart made sweeping allegations of criminal wrongdoing by box holders saying it would be irrational for anyone who wasn't a lawbreaker to entrust that store with assets that a bank could better safeguard. Huh, I wonder if Christopher Ray helped her write that garbage. She actually wrote these words. Only those who wish to hide their wealth from the DEA, IRS, or creditors would rent a box anonymously at U.S. private vaults. But the FBI's evidence against customers was pretty thin, according to the L.A. Times. Agent Zellhart wrote that agents had seen some of the customers pull up to the store in vehicles with Nevada, Ohio, and Illinois license plates. So what? She said, quoting now, Based on my training and experience in money laundering investigations, Chicago, Illinois is a hub of both drug trafficking and money laundering. I believe these patrons were using their USPV box to store drug proceeds. That's the quote. wonder if uh, Mayor Beetlejuice, Lori Lightfoot, knows about that up in Chicago. Anyway, LA, LA Times says she cited no facts to back up the suspicion that everybody with a safe deposit box at U.S. private vaults was storing drug proceeds. Nothing, 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 nothing at all. Other customers were showing up in rental cars, and that too, she claimed, was a sign of drug dealers evading law enforcement. Agent Zellhart wrote that an owner of U.S. private vaults told a government witness that the store's best customers were bookies, 
prostitutes and weed guys. Okay. So the best customers were bookies, prostitutes, and weed guys. Okay. What about the other customers? Hello, Fourth Amendment, anybody? Of all the box holders, Agent Zellhart mentioned only nine of them, either identifying them by their initials or not identifying them at all. She said they were linked or associated with law enforcement investigations, but again, provided no facts specifying criminal misconduct. She wrote that while the majority of customers seem to be drug dealers, U.S. private vaults tried to attract a non-criminal clientele as well so as not to be too obvious a haven for criminals. Okay, so why did she try to violate the rights of the non-criminal clientele? Anything? Anybody? No, 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 nothing. Then I got to touch that. So the cool thing about a lawsuit is what they call deposition, right? You get to depose the other side under oath. So at FBI agent Zellhart's deposition, plaintiff's attorney Frommer asked her, was it your opinion that most of the people who rented safe deposit boxes were criminals in some way? She answered, well, I was expecting a lot of criminals. I don't know about most. So attorney Frommer reminded her of the language in her affidavit where she said she expected pretty much all of them, right? So she answered, I don't sort of know how to answer your question as to whether it was all of them, it was most of them. I don't have a percentage. But again, the affidavit said a majority of the customers seem to be drug dealers. And then she takes it back under oath in a deposition. On the 84th and 85th pages of the affidavit, FBI agent Zellhart assured Judge Kim the FBI would respect customers' rights. Hello. She testified that section was written by Andrew Brown, an assistant U.S. attorney, and the driving force of the whole criminal investigation. Now, what Brown wrote contradicts the FBI's plan for confiscating hundreds of safe deposit boxes. He underlined the government's lack of evidence to justify any criminal search of the customer's property in the affidavit. So his section of the affidavit says this. The warrants authorized the seizure of the nests of the boxes themselves, not their contents. He said, by seizing the nests of safety deposit boxes themselves, the government will necessarily end up with custody of what is inside those boxes initially. But the affidavit told Judge Kim that agents would follow their written inventory policies an attempt to notify the lawful owners of the property stored in the boxes how to claim their property. Wow. So the FBI said and is still saying, uh Constitution, we don't need no stinking Constitution, man. So they just lied. 
The affidavit said under FBI policy, inspection of each box would extend no further than necessary to just determine the ownership of each box. They lied. But agents' inspection of the boxes went substantially further, just as the government planned, according to FBI records filed in court. They lied to this judge. He needs to put them all in jail. As a matter of fact, according to Jesse Murray, the chief of the FBI's asset forfeiture unit in Los Angeles, by the time Judge Kim got the warrant request, the FBI had been preparing an enormous forfeiture operation for at least six months. Agent Murray testified that in the summer of 2020, Matthew Moon, then one of the highest-ranking FBI agents in Los Angeles, asked her if her team was capable of handling a possible large-scale seizure of safe deposit boxes at U.S. private vaults. Okay, now wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. It said that in the summer of 2020, Matthew Moon was then one of the highest-ranking FBI agents in L.A., okay? And he was part of this conspiracy to violate the constitutional rights of hundreds of people, okay? So... Um, so, so where is he now? What's, what's he doing now? Did he get promoted? Huh? Oh, retired. Oh, I'm sure full pension benefits everything. LinkedIn, Matthew Moon, retired FBI special agent in charge, senior executive and director of compliance and security investigations. Special agent in charge. He wasn't one of the highest ranking FBI agents in L.A. He was in charge of the field office, looks like to me. I mean, yeah. He sure was. He was the guy. I'm looking at his uh, deal on LinkedIn here. He was the guy. He gets to retire, and nobody's going to raid his safety deposit box. You know, professional courtesy. I'm sure he's living large. I mean, special agent in charge of an FBI field office, you're making six figures easy. So let me go back to this. Let me go back to this. Jesse Murray, chief of the FBI's asset forfeiture unit in L.A., testified in the summer of 2020, Matthew Moon, special agent in charge of the L.A. field office, highest-ranking FBI agent in L.A., asked her if her team was capable of handling a possible large-scale seizure of safe deposit boxes at U.S. private vaults. Murray told him yes, 
She recalled joining a conference call in late 2020 and another in early 2021 to plan forfeitures of the box contents with the U.S. Attorney's Office, other federal and local agencies, and maybe even our legal forfeiture unit at FBI headquarters in D.C. Okay. By the way, Matthew Moon just, uh, just retired this year. I mean, just retired this month, just so you know. Just retired this month after 26 years and three months with the FBI. Just so you know. Um, Agent Zellhart and a colleague confirmed the grand scale of the planned forfeiture in a memo to fellow agents with detailed instructions for carrying out the raid. So, so the memo made, made, made a lie out of the affidavit to the judge. That's basically it. The memo approved by Moon, who just retired in the last few days, and two other senior FBI managers ordered agents to assign CATS ID numbers to all cash found in the boxes. Now, that stands for Consolidated Asset Tracking System. That's something the government uses to keep track of everything it seizes for forfeiture. Agent Murray testified once she reviewed the final draft of Zellhart's affidavit, it was clear to her there's probable cause to seize and confiscate the contents of every box as long as it met the $5,000 minimum set by the Justice Department's Asset Forfeiture Policy Manual. Agent Murray offered no explanation for why the FBI believed it had legal grounds to take away the assets of hundreds of unknown box holders based on their presumed ties to unknown crimes. See, to confiscate an asset under U.S. forfeiture laws, the L.A. Times helpfully tells us the government must first have evidence that it was derived from criminal conduct or used to facilitate criminal conduct. Okay, wait. Under U.S. forfeiture laws, they must have evidence. Well, I guess not. Not if you're Chris Ray's FBI. In a court filing in the class action case, Brown and other prosecutors claimed the FBI had no obligation to tell Judge Kim that it was prepared to seek forfeiture of property inside the boxes. Well, of course not. You've been trashing the Constitution for years. You've been lying to judges for years. Why stop now? The prosecutors acknowledged agents owe a duty of candor to courts, but that is about known facts that have already occurred. Oh, oh okay. So you, you don't owe a duty of candor to the judge about what you're asking him to sign off on that you want to do. Only about stuff that's already happened. That is fascinating. And if you don't think some sharp, eagle-eyed defense attorneys that read the L.A. Times are going to be using that from here on out, you're crazy because they will. I don't know if you heard about this, but attorneys talk to each other. Anyway, the prosecutor said the FBI did not need to tell Judge Kim 
how later actions such as criminal investigations against box holders or forfeiture of box contents would play out. Well, they lied to him. They assured him it wouldn't play out that way. Anyway, Judge Kim was explicit in limiting the scope of the raid. His warrant stated, and I quote, this warrant does not authorize a criminal search or seizure of the contents of the safety deposit boxes. Well, I guess they didn't care. The judge gave the FBI permission to take inventory of the box contents to protect against theft accusations. He ordered agents to identify the owners and notify them that they could claim their property. But by then, Agent Zellhart and her colleague had already told agents in their memo to take notes on anything that suggests any of the cash may be criminal proceeds, such as whether it was bundled in rubber bands or smelled like marijuana. The FBI also had dogs sniff all the cash for any odor of marijuana or other drugs, a step that was outside the bounds of the written inventory policies that the government vowed to follow. Lyndon Versosa, a postal inspector who often has dogs check mail for drug investigations, testified that Agent Zellhart, or a DEA agent, he couldn't remember which, asked him to round up canine teams. He got dogs from the Glendale, El Monte, Chino, and Los Angeles Police Departments to smell the money. Now, at his deposition, Postal Inspector Lyndon Versosa was asked whether a drug dog can help identify the owner of a pile of cash. He responded, nope. What about protecting agents against accusations of theft? Attorney Frommer asked, can uh, drug dogs help agents with that? Versosa said, no. When he was asked, could a dog help justify forfeiture of the cash? Versosa replied, eh, it could. So prosecutors have made extensive use of the dog alerts on cash, notoriously unreliable evidence in a state where marijuana is legal, by the way, to convince judges to approve confiscation of box holders' money. Okay, now wait a minute. So what if what if somebody who owned a legal marijuana store put money in the safe deposit box because they're a cash business because marijuana is still against federal law and, and banks are, you know, FDIC and all that kind of stuff. I guess the answer would be the FBI and the federal prosecutors don't care, right? So you got that. In the raid's aftermath, the criminal case against U.S. private vaults sputtered to an end with nobody sent to prison. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. I thought they were in the cahoots with the the gold and silver dealer next, next door. They had a conspiracy going with the drug dealers, which had nothing to do with all the legal, you know, law-abiding customers. So what's this? company went out of business. It was sentenced to pay a $1.1 million fine for laundering drug money, but prosecutors conceded 
that the company lacked the means to pay the fine. Under a plea deal, the U.S. Attorney's Office agreed not to prosecute the company's owners despite a Justice Department policy under Attorney General Merrick Garland to hold individuals accountable for corporate wrongdoing. And despite Agent Zellhart telling Judge Kim that U.S. private vaults was owned and managed by criminals. Oh, I see. So was the FBI actually in cahoots with the criminal owners of this place to rip off the law-abiding customers? I'll tell you, this case stinks like a cooler full of trout left in the trunk of a 57 Chevy all summer long. This stinks to high heavens. This is ridiculous. The FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office rebuffed repeated requests from the L.A. Times for a full accounting of what was seized. They divulged neither how much the government has kept nor how much it has returned. Records from dozens of lawsuits stemming from the raid make clear, though, that it produced a windfall of tens of millions of dollars for the Justice Department. According to Agent Murray, local police departments that assisted in the raid have sought shares of the money. Oh, that's just great. Some of the government's gains came from customers who abandoned their boxes. FBI agent Zellhart testified, there's a good number of people who just said, I don't want it. I think there were 20 or 30 of those. But... When the FBI vacated U.S. private vaults, it posted a notice in the store window inviting customers to claim their property. Agents testified the FBI went on to investigate anyone who stepped forward, checking their bank records, their state tax returns, their DMV files, and criminal histories. Ah, Fourth Amendment, what's that? Lawyers for box holders denounced the process as a ploy to gather evidence for forfeitures and criminal investigations. Uh, yeah. Agent Zellhart testified that the FBI was just making sure it was returning things to rightful owners. Okay, so she does get paid to lie, just reiterating that. I mean, as if the affidavit didn't say what it said, all right? In all, the FBI ultimately returned at least some of the contents of about 430 of the 700 boxes, according to the government. Many box holders have agreed to give up a portion of their cash and property after deciding it was not worth spending tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees or more to recover the rest. Well, the FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office, should have to pay those legal fees as far as I'm concerned. That's my opinion. You're entitled to it. Some of those and many others have faced baseless FBI accusations of criminal wrongdoing. Here's an example. In May 2021, the FBI claimed the contents of 369 boxes, including the $86 million in cash, were linked to crime and filed papers for confiscation through forfeitures for the whole thing. But court documents show the FBI went on to return everything in about 180 of those boxes after failing to produce evidence 
to support the allegations. So they're just evil. They're just evil. By the way, those box holders retrieved more than $27 million. Attorneys for other customers say they recovered close to $25 million more through private negotiations with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Benjamin Gluck, a lawyer for box holders, said this entire episode is a stain on the U.S. Attorney's Office and on everyone who played a part in it. Prosecutors have pressed ahead, filing more than 40 court complaints to confiscate millions of dollars from box holders who challenged the seizures. In some of those cases, prosecutors cited no evidence that the money was tied to any specific crime, alleging simply that a dog smelled drug residue on the cash or that it was bagged or wrapped in a way that aroused suspicion of drug trafficking. In a few other cases, prosecutors and the FBI accused box holders by name of committing multiple felonies, offered no evidence to back up the allegations, and then gave back everything. Well, I think the remedy here is simple. These federal prosecutors and FBI agents need to go to federal prison. That is the only way I can think of to discourage them and others from continuing to break federal law. Now, LA Times says, one of those customers that they accused of committing multiple felonies without evidence was a glassware maker who kept more than $340,000 in cash and gold in his box. In a court declaration, he said he rented the box in 2020 because it was a disturbing and scary time of social upheaval, and he distrusted banks. He wrote, protests and riots were the normal news. Banks had been boarding up their windows, and emergency alerts were prompting people to stay indoors after curfew. Prosecutors falsely accused this guy of fraud, racketeering, conspiracy, drug trafficking, and money laundering. FBI agent Madison McDonald, who co-authored the raid plan, filed a sworn statement saying the allegations were true. The complaint included no evidence the glassware maker had committed any of those crimes, but alleged he had an extensive history of narcotic trafficking arrests and convictions. Wow, these people committed perjury. They need to be held accountable. The man's lawyer, a woman who goes by the name of Yale Toby, castigated the prosecutors for exaggerating expunged misdemeanors, saying they intentionally omitted that he had been arrested 16 years ago and was never convicted of a felony. She called it an egregious abuse of power, and so it is, so it is. Now, spokespeople for both the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A. declined to comment on the case. I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. Prosecutors demanded that the glassmaker provide a sworn statement on when, why, and from whom he received every dollar of the $340,000. 
the names of everyone who had given him gifts since 2017, five years of tax returns for him and his wife, who is a doctor, and all of their bank and investment account numbers. You know what? It's another business. Assistant U.S. Attorney Victor Rogers asked Attorney Roby, the attorney for the glassware maker, in an email six days later, you know, before proceeding too far down the road in this case, do you have a settlement offer to resolve this matter? The government is prepared to be reasonable in connection with the resolution, and I think that an early settlement of this case would probably be beneficial to both parties. But attorney Toby refused to cut a deal. She asked U.S. District Judge Mark C. Scarzi to put a stop to the government's abuse and overreach by dismissing the complaint. On March 9th this year, nearly a year after the FBI seized the man's cash and gold, Judge Scarcy ordered the government to give it all back. You know, what do you do? What do you do when law enforcement is actually lawbreakers? You know? When prosecutors and federal agents are just lying through their teeth when they're knowingly violating people's Fourth Amendment rights, when they're perjuring themselves and sworn statements, what do you do? Well, if you're Merrick Garland, Christopher Ray, absolutely nothing. I wonder if Christopher Ray is ever going to appear under oath in front of a congressional committee again. I wonder if anybody would ask him about this case. It's just so egregious. It is so egregious. Oh, my goodness. I mean, just when I think that I've, you know, kind of plumbed the depths of why the FBI should be totally dismantled, You know, I come across, I come across something like this, you know? I mean, wow. Wow. Okay, well, you know, I guess it's about that time. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to. Online. Have it delivered to your front door. Anywhere in the continental United States of America. Okay, so today's tweet of the day is from somebody who calls himself QCAP. Never heard of him before. Let's see. 
But a lot of people follow him on Twitter. Q Capital 2020. A lot of people follow him on Twitter. And he's got a little over two-minute video from the late great economist Milton Friedman talking about inflation. This is something that Joe Biden and everybody controlling Joe Biden lies about. But Milton Friedman told the truth, and here it is. Great Depression was not produced by a failure of business. On the contrary, it was produced by a failure of government and a failure of government in an area in which responsibility had been assigned to government since the founding of this country. The Constitution of the United States it gives Congress the power to coin money and set the value thereof. And it was in the management of this fundamental function of government that government failed and produced the Great Depression. We have learned from that failure the Federal Reserve will not fail in the same way again. This time it will fail in a different way. <laughs> this time it has been failing, not by producing a Great Depression, but by producing an inflation. Because just as you will hear the story that it was business that was responsible for the Depression, so you will today hear the story that it is labor and management that are responsible for inflation. It is the same kind of a myth. Inflation is made in one place and one place only, Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., the chief source is a Greek temple on Constitution Avenue, which houses the Federal Reserve Board. And a major accomplice, of course, sits in the halls of Congress in Washington. They are a major accomplice because you tell them to be. The American people have been telling Congress for many years, spend more money on us, please. But they've been telling us, don't raise our taxes. Congress has been listening. It's been spending more money on you. But on the other hand, it's been very unwilling to raise taxes. As a result, it has imposed inflation as a tax. That's one tax that you don't have to vote for, but you have to pay. Well, again, with respect to money, can you print money at no cost? It's very cheap to turn out those pieces of paper. But does that get society something for nothing? Not at all. It's simply a different form of taxation. If you print money, people have more money to spend. If they spend more money on the same amount of goods, prices go up. And in effect, everybody is paying a tax through inflation. Once again, it's only a form of taxation. There it is. There it is. And so, everybody in the Biden administration lies about this. Every cotton-picking one of them. But you just heard the truth. And that's what we try to bring you day in and day out on the Doc Washburn Show. And we appreciate you guys. You've been listening to episode 246 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Thank you again, RedRiverYourWay.com, for sponsoring the Tweet of the Day. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. 
And that's the way it is. Monday, September 26, 2022.